Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast here on the Sports History Network. We'd like to thank you for once again listening to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. We are but one of the many great sports history shows here on the network covering everything from basketball to football to boxing. There's even a new wrestling history show on the Sports History Network. So lots of fun stuff going on. We encourage you to check it out at sportshistorynetwork.com. We also encourage you to check us out on Facebook, Hello Old Sports Podcast. We encourage you to Email us if you so desire, helloworldsports at gmail.com. If you have any ideas for shows or comments, feedback, anything of that, we just a couple of episodes ago did our very first listener-requested episode on the 1959 Chicago White Sox, the Go-Go White Sox, so feel free to reach out to us there. And you can also, as always, follow us on your podcast app of choice, like, rate, review, Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Andrew, how are you today? I'm doing well, Dan. Uh, that guy doesn't know it, by the way, yet, but I'll be a guest on his wrestling podcast. Uh, <laughs> it uh, is. I will be inviting myself on his podcast. It is Wrestling with Heels. It is the new podcast on the Sports History Network, and every week he tells the story of a different wrestling heel. In the history of wrestling, he's done Abdullah the Butcher. He's done the Magnificent Morocco. I forget who the third one he did was. So, yes, I, I, I certainly encourage you, Andrew, to go on his show and maybe we'll have him on ours. And we'll yeah. be uh, we'll we'll be focusing specifically on my remarkable heel run in the uh, Backyard Wrestling Federation. <laughs> I, I ran in, in ninth grade. Um, <laughs> way. But um, what was that? I was the booker, too. Funny how that works. Coincidentally, I was the champion. But uh, I'm excited about tonight for a few reasons. The year we're going to be discussing is the year I was born. It's also a, a big year in New York sports, one of uh, only being one of my teams. But I sort of, you know, grew up with not any firsthand knowledge, but just sort of having a bit of a, probably because it was when I was born, but having a bit of a soft spot for, for this year we're going to discuss. Obviously, there's a, some positives, some negatives, you know, but um, yeah, I'm, I've liked the two we've done. We did one on 1920 and one on 1941 where we kind of looked at at every year. This is obviously a much more recent year, but um, yeah, I think it's going to be good. So in previous episodes, the first one of these that we did was 1920 when we talked about the, you know, 100 years ago, we did it, did it last year and we talked about Babe Ruth's breakout season. We talked about the founding of the NFL. We talked about the founding of the Negro Leagues and, and a bunch of other stuff. 1920 
Olympics. And then we did uh, over the summer, we did 1941, which is 80 years ago. And we talked a lot of baseball. We talked about the DiMaggio streak. We talked about Ted Williams and the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 1941 World Series. Talked a lot about Joe Lewis and his reign as champion during that time. I think this is probably of the three we've done. This is the one that probably is the least baseball focus, which is something to say if you think about it, given what a big deal baseball was and all the crazy things in the postseason in 1986. But of, of all of the, this being the third that we've done, this is the first one that I feel like is not mostly baseball. You know, any time before the 50s, you're not really talking about the NBA. And to be honest, depending on where you want to start it, maybe even later than that, the NFL at least prior to World War II, was not the same sort of animal. So this is the first modern year we've done. And I don't know where you would start modern, probably at least, you know, somewhere in the 60s. But there's plenty of ba- of baseball to talk about. Certainly, there's plenty of baseball to talk about. But there's plenty of other stuff to talk about, too. I don't think there's any less baseball to talk about this year than there were with the other ones. It's just that there's so much more of everything else. And we should note as we begin this, knowing the topic and knowing the verbosity of our hosts, that this is almost certainly going to be a two episode series that we'll start this this episode and then finish it up next time. We don't know how far we're going to get with this first time around, but we're going to start and see how far we get and then we'll finish it up in our next episode. So if you like what you hear tonight, then uh, stick around because there's another episode coming where we finish up our look into 1986. And just as we get started here, we're obviously going to be talking about the year 1986. With sports, it's a little bit tricky because there are things that happened in 1986 that don't really happen in what we're considering the sports year of 1986. But then there are things that happened in 1987 that definitely are considered part of 1986. And there's kind of stuff that happened in 1985. So if you're talking about the 1985-86 NBA season, stuff that happened in October of 85, not that there's that much, but sort of maybe counts. And then, you know, the, but the real place where it comes in is the NFL. So when we talk about the 1986 NFL season, we're talking about the season that started in September of 86 and ran through January of 87. The 1985 NFL playoffs in January, the famous Bears run to the Super Bowl, obviously was in the calendar year, but not really in the sports year. So I think we're going to sort of take this with three pillars, which are the three seasons and playoffs in the three major sports, MLB, NFL, and NBA. And then in between those, we'll sort of go on some digressions to some of the smaller things that happen, some of the other sports that maybe we don't usually focus as much here on the podcast and Andrew's right. It's the four sports where you consider the playoffs, the 86 playoffs. So that's June, uh, you know, spring, I should say of 86 for hockey and basketball. That's the October of 86 for baseball. And then that's January of 87 for the NFL. So with all of that said, would you like to go ahead and get started? 
Yeah. So t- just for, we'll do basketball, baseball, football, hockey, tennis, golf, auto racing, all that tonight. And then the second part we'll do, um, will be just about wrestling. Eighty-six, <laughs> And I will at least mention that, but, um, yep, I'm, I'm ready to get started. So where do you want to, uh, where do you want to kick things off? I guess we should probably start with the NBA and we're really in, we are smack dab in the middle of the golden age of the NBA you know, the famous 80s Celtics Lakers, the great rivalry. Do you disagree with it as the golden age? Golden age of the NBA starts in 12 minutes when the Knicks take on the Bulls. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. So the Lakers and Celtics had met the two previous years in the NBA finals. In 84, the Celtics had beaten the Lakers in seven games. And then in 85, the Lakers led by a sort of a surprising MVP finals, MVP series by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at the age of 38. He manages to rally lead the Lakers to a six game victory over the Celtics in the 85 finals. So going into this season, there have been two championships by the Lakers. No, take that back. There've been three by the Lakers, two by the Celtics, Philly snuck in there in 81. Philly snuck in there in 83, I should say, and beat the Lakers, swept them in four games. And we talked about some of those Dr. J Moses teams in a previous episode. And going into this season, everybody is very much expecting it to be the Lakers and the Celtics again. But as we'll see, it doesn't really work out that way. And I think maybe that's where we should start because the Lakers despite having represented the Western Conference in the previous four NBA finals, don't manage to make it back in the 86 finals, and they lose in the Western Conference finals to an upstart team from Houston. In the early 2000s, when Bill Simmons was kind of, uh, I don't want to say revolutionary, but sort of changing sports journalism and stuff like that, and I think a lot of guys like him you you know you become you sort of become what you despised all along where he's now considered kind of the old guard but one of the things he would always say as a Boston sports fan and I think it was one of those where he said it he says it mostly joking but there's a part of him that believed it was that the Lakers wanted no part of the Celtics in the finals that year in their rubber match you know the Celtics had won in 84 the Lakers had won in 85 this was going to be the third straight year and this was the best of those Celtics teams. They very famously went 40 and one at home that year. And his contention was always sort of that the Lakers, not that they threw the series, but that they, uh, they might've started to get a little bit of um, bug eyed looking at what they were going to have to deal with in the finals. And we're okay to lose to the, to the Rockets in the Western conference finals. So the Lakers had been led obviously by magic and by Kareem and to a secondary extent by by James Worthy. Michael Cooper was a veteran presence off the bench. Byron Scott had been with the team for a few years as a starting shooting guard. But they also had two forwards, two power forwards. Jamal Wilkes, who had won a championship with the Warriors in the 70s. He was a famous UCLA player when he was known as Keith Wilkes in the early 70s. And then he had had a good good career with the Warriors and then moved on to the Lakers where he continued to have a really good career. And then they also had a guy by the name of Bob McAdoo who had won an MVP 
with the Buffalo Braves in the 1970s. And McAdoo off the bench was one of the key role players of those early and mid 80s Lakers. After the 85 season, both Wilkes and McAdoo leave the Lakers. I believe they both retire. I, I, I think Wilkes definitely does. I'm not sure yet about McAdoo. I could double check on that, but I'm pretty sure that they both retire after the 85 season. And so the Lakers have a hole at the forward position, particularly at the power forward position. And they do another thing. They do two things to try and fill that gap. And they bring in the first that they draft AC green who ends up uh, eventually moving into the starting lineup and becomes one of the key players on the late eighties Lakers teams that win the back-to-back titles in 87 and 88. And then they also sign a guy by the name of Maurice Lucas. Maurice Lucas had been a star player for the Blazers. He'd been sort of the second guy on the Bill Walton 1977 NBA Finals Championship uh, Portland team. But he was not a guy who got along well with his teammates. And he comes to L.A., And it's an immediate clash and he doesn't get along well, really with anybody. He clashes with Riley over everything from playing time to how much he's getting the ball to his flight, his seat on a flight. This was back when the team still flew commercial and Lucas was angry because he didn't get a first class seat, even though his seniority entitled to it entitled him to it and actually ends up filing a union grievance uh, during his one season with the Lakers. And it's sort of like oil and water. And there's a story how about two thirds of the way through the season in the 85, 86 NBA season, the Lakers are playing and I'll just, just give me a minute here to, to pull up. up. So uh, McAdoo, after the 85 season, the Lakers opted not to re-sign him. Uh, they brought, they, I guess it was sort of a decision to bring in Lucas instead of bringing back McAdoo. He then went and played in about 30 games for the Sixers the next year. And that was it for him in the NBA. But he then played in Italy until 1992. Oh, wow. He played six more years of basketball, which would have taken him until he was in his 40s. He was almost done in the NBA, but still was a long ways from retirement. So in uh, December 12th, it's even earlier this in the season than I thought it was. It's only about a month and a half into the season. Lucas goes on a tear. He scores 17 points in 22 minutes against his former team, against Port, against Phoenix, which was another team he had played with. Midway through the third quarter, Magic Johnson glares disgustingly at Lucas as he dribbles the ball up the court. He calls probably, for it. He probably glared disgustedly. Disgustedly. I'm sorry. You're right glares at Lucas and calls a 22nd timeout. Riley says, what's going on? Is somebody hurt? Johnson says, I can't play with this mother effer. Get him out of the effing game. <laughs> and that was sort of the end of the Maurice Lucas. He, he, he does finish out the season with the Lakers, but the chemistry just isn't there. And so they make it, they do well. Like, I don't know what was their final record. I think they might have even made it to 60 wins. They were not a bad team by any means. I'll look it up. 85-86, they were 62-20. and 20, So that's still a pretty good 
they were the number one seed in the West. Number one seed in the West, exact same record as the year before. So, yeah, still a damn good team, still the Lakers. But they go up against this Houston team in the finals, this Twin Towers, Akeem Olajuwon, Ralph Sampson team. And this is a team that's been lost to history because their time on the stage was really, it was really brief. It was basically only one year. But for that one year, they were a really, really, really good team. Yep. And they uh, they beat the Lakers in five. A key game there, in my opinion, was game four when they won 105 to 95 to go up three games to one in the series. I say that was the key game. Do you know why that was the key game? Not off the top of my head, no. It's played on Sunday, May the 18th, 1986. The day of your birth. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean... You know, it, it you only got it like almost forget about the 81 team that went to the finals. Yeah, there were still Rockets, but there was a weak team, whatever. All you have to think about is 82, 83, 84, 85 Lakers, 87, 88, 89 Lakers. And you could go a little further, but for our purposes, we'll stop there and say the Lakers made the NBA finals seven out of eight years. The only Western Conference team to beat the Lakers in a playoff series in an eight year period, essentially the entire Reagan presidency. If you want to look at it like that, mm-hmm. only team, the only Western conference team that beat the Lakers in the playoffs in the Reagan administration was this series with the Rockets. The main issue that they have is that Kareem just cannot guard Akeem Olajuwon. Olajuwon dominates the Lakers, they try and put anybody they can possibly put on him to guard him. Green, Lucas, Kareem, Kurt Rambis, Elijah Wan eats all of their lunch. The Lakers win the first game and then lose the next four. Ralph Sampson hits a buzzer beater to send the Lakers home to send the Rockets to the NBA finals. The Rockets are go up against the Celtics and the Rockets are cut. I want to talk a little bit more about the Rockets before we get to the Celtics, but The Rockets are coached by Bill Fitch, who had been the Celtics coach in 81 when they beat the Rockets in the NBA Finals. But Fitch and Larry Bird just could not get along. And I think it's probably it's I think it's after the following year. I think it's after the 82 season that they basically forced Bill Fitch out of town. And then he he hooks on instead with the Rockets, but it's a, it ends up being a really interesting. Oh, actually I'm wrong. Fitch actually coaches the team all the way through 83. So two years after winning a championship, and then they force him out just before the 84 season, when the Celtics win their second championship in the bird years, but Bill Fitch, who just never could get along with any of his players, but especially with Larry bird is now the guy who's going to be going up against him in the finals. Unfortunately for this Rockets team, it just kind of falls apart after that one year. Um, And this is you talked about Bill Simmons. He writes about this book, about this team in his book of basketball that he wrote about 10, 12 years ago. They they have drug issues. Two two different players get suspended for cocaine. Uh, Samson and Akeem both want new contracts. And then um, Samson gets hurt halfway through the season in 86 87 they trade him away 
within a couple of years. And so this team that everybody thought was the next new thing and going to be a challenge to the Lakers for years to come in the Western Conference, it's really kind of a flash in the pan that only lasts about a year. But for that one year, everybody thought they were the new thing and the new challenger in the NBA. Yeah, and it turned out that what he actually had was that it was the team in the other conference that was closer to the end. The Lakers still had several more years left in them, whereas the other the other team in the dynasty in the 80s wasn't for partially for reasons we'll get to, I'm sure, a little later. But they were the ones who didn't have much left in the tank and that the a team in Detroit was going to knock them off their pedestal. I think it's interesting. You know, you mentioned this Rockets team and this is obviously, like you said, to start, we're in the very sort of middle of the 80s NBA, the Lakers and the Celtics. And I know they didn't play this year, but they're still the two big poles on opposite ends of the country in the NBA. So it's still very much, you know, the 80s NBA. But you say the name Hakeem Olajuwon. So you're talking about, all right, a guy who would win a couple of titles in the 90s would be a fence post in the NBA for all of the 90s was also Patrick Ewing's rookie year. And as we go to the Eastern Conference and the Eastern Conference playoffs and start to talk about the Celtics, they begin their playoff run that year in a 1-8 matchup against Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, and that's the famous Michael Jordan 63-point game in double overtime uh, in a game they do lose, but sort of the first big pro moment for Michael Jordan. Yeah, and we will we will get to that in a couple of minutes. So why don't we talk a little bit about this Celtics team? Because this is widely considered one of the best single season teams in NBA history. They go 65 and are they 65 and 17? No, they're 67 and 15, even better. Like you said, they're 40 and one on the road. They only lose one game. They're 40 and one at home. They lose one game. They lose to Portland in December of 1985. And just pulling up the box score of that game. Nobody seems to have been hurt. Bird, McHale, Parrish, Johnson, all all play. But this is a team with four future Hall of Famers in the starting lineup. The entire front court, what becomes known in Boston as the big three, Bird, Parrish, McHale, all Hall of Famers. Dennis Johnson, who'd been the MVP of the NBA Finals with Seattle in 1979, is the starting point guard. Larry Bird later calls Johnson the best player he ever played alongside. And the, the shooting guard is Danny Ainge, who's a longtime you know, star in the NBA. Maybe star might be a little bit of an overstatement, but a solid player, guy who makes an all-star team. Really good player. And... This is just probably the most one of the most dominant teams, certainly in Celtics history, in a lot of ways in NBA history. And the 86 Celtics are kind of considered in Boston sort of one of these teams of lore that still get talked about fondly even 35 years later. Yeah. And, you know, it's Bird at the absolute height of his powers, 29 years old. He's healthy that he plays in all but. Well, he plays in every game. He starts all but one game that year. The only guy who really misses any kind of time is is McHale, and that's, you know, he only misses, what, a handful of games. Um, Bird is the MVP. Uh, he averages, let me see, he averages 
I can't see what he averages a game. I got to try to find it. But um, he's the MVP. He's obviously has has to be considered his best year, right, in 86. Yeah, and I'll get you his per game here in a second. Bird averages 25.8 points a game, 6.8 assists, 9.8 rebounds. So a great year for Bird. Third MVP season in a row for him. He wins the MVP in 84, 85, and 86. Celtics go to the finals all three years. It's worth noting that at this point, Magic has not won an MVP. The MVP the year before for Bird won his three was Moses Malone in 83. And then before that, I think it was it was Dr. J one year. It was Kareem one year. Moses actually went back to back, I think, 82 and 83. So the Magic Bird debate in 86 is much different than it would be in 92 because Magic's career is on the upswing. His best years are still ahead of him in 1986 and Bird's best years are behind him by the time the 86 finals are over. Yeah. And I mean, obviously some of that's, that's all hindsight at the time. It's, you know, neither of them show, seem to be showing any signs of, of slowing down and, and the, you know, there was no reason to believe that both of these teams, you know, with the Lakers, really, the Lakers still were the dominant team in the Western Conference for about six more years, you know, on balance. You know, this was this was that Celtics team that and yeah, they won in 81 and they won in 84. But I mean, when you pick a team from this era, nobody ever says anything. But the 86 team is the pinnacle of that, you know, Celtics run and probably has to be considered the greatest Celtics team of all time post-Russell era. Oh, I would absolutely agree. And, you know, li- I lived in Boston a couple years for a cu- for a couple years, a couple years ago, and there were m- many a time when you'd be flipping around the TV uh, late at night and there'd be some sort of special on one of the sports channels about the 86 Celtics. One of the other things that I think is worth noting is that This is Bill Walton's year. Bill Walton, we've talked about Bill Walton before, who better college player than he was a pro. And when we did our NBA 75 episode a few weeks back, I thought we both talked about how Walton's NBA career sometimes gets kind of overrated. The Blazers, he plays uh, 65 games for the Blazers in 77 when they win the championship and he's named MVP, MVP about the finals and the regular season. And then he's, he's having probably the best year of his career. Walton is in 78 when he gets hurt, breaks his foot, misses the entire next year, gets traded to San Diego to the San Diego Clippers plays 14 games in, in 79, 80 misses the next two full seasons Then he does okay the next few years, plays somewhere between 30 and 65 games or so each of the next three years. But by 85, he feels that his career is basically over, not just physically, but emotionally. He's tired of basketball and really wants to go to a winning team. And in the 1980s, in the NBA, there really are only two winning teams the Lakers and the Celtics, he reaches out to the Lakers first. They don't want to take the risk with his injury history. I never thought about that. Bill Walton, UCLA, California, 
I never thought about that. Yeah, the fact that he ended up on the Celtics instead of the Lakers is pretty surprising. Yeah, but, you know, I almost have to wonder if that would have been not as good of a fit for him. First of all, the Lakers were deeper. The Lakers, I mean, the Celtics are pretty damn deep, too. Every member of their front line was on the made the Hall of Fame. But, you know, Magic, Kareem. I don't see Kareem enjoying Bill Walton at that stage in both their careers on top of the whole UCLA, who's the greatest player. Like, I, I'm not saying it would have been a fit. I'm just more, it, you know, I, it had never occurred to me that, oh, yeah, that's a little surprising. Like, Plus, he'd been playing in Southern California for the last several years with the Clippers, first in San Diego, and then his last year with the Clippers was their first year in L.A. So it would have made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But they won't do it. Our back takes the risk. And Walton ends up playing 80 games with the Celtics. He he drops into the starting lineup for a little while when McHale's hurt. There's a famous story about before a game when McHale's hurt and Walton's warming up on the sidelines and Bird comes over to him and he says, I know you think that those touches that usually go to Kevin are going to go to you, but no, no, those are all mine. You You don't get those. The other great Bird story from that season, I believe it's from that season, is that McHale... McHale and Bird do not. It's an overstatement to say that McHale and Bird don't get along, but they don't. They have very similar or very dissimilar personalities. McHale is sort of much more of like a lunch pail guy, just wants to put in his work and not somebody who's over overly competitive as far as personal accolades. And there's a game during this season where McHale has 50 like 57 or 58 points and birds like trying to feed him the ball to get to the 60 points. And Mikhail eventually just says, you know, you don't have to do this. I don't really care if I score 60 points and bird is like incensed with this. And a week or two later, bird has a chance to score 60. He does of course. And he turns to Mikhail and says, that's how you have to score 60 points. So very different personalities, but, this is, a, you know, this is a team, you know, they're not all that deep, the Celtics, when it comes to beyond that. Usually when you talk about the 86 Celtics, you talk about the starting five, you talk about Walton, and then really beyond that, it's a lot of guys who aren't as, you know, aren't as well known. Jerry Seesting, who we'll talk about a little bit in a minute, Scott Wedman, uh, Rick Carlisle, who's been a coach in the league for, you know, 25 years at this point. So the other thing that I would that's worth noting is that one of the other stars of the Celtics uh, was Vernon Maxwell, who had been the MVP of the 81 finals and had kind of worn out as well. I'm sorry, was Cedric Maxwell, not Vernon Maxwell, Cedric Maxwell, who had been the MVP of the 81 finals and had sort of uh, worn out his welcome with the Lakers. Andrew's making a face. Did I get that wrong? I don't see Cedric or Vernon Maxwell on the 86 Celtics. No, no, he'd been the star, Cedric oh, wow. Maxwell. And oh. he was MVP of the 81 finals and then got a big contract the year before or the year or two before from the Celtics. And depending on who you talk to, some people say that he got complacent once he got the big contract. There's a story where they're at practice and Maxwell 
is joking like, hey, somebody jump on my leg and snap it and I'll miss six weeks and I can, you know, take a little vacation and bird hears this and is not happy and says, come on over here. I'll snap it for you right now. So Maxwell and bird are kind of at odds. And so when the conversation arises and they can trade for Walton, they trade Maxwell away. They bring in Bill Walton. So this is a different Celtic team in 86. And even from a couple years ago, a lot of the guys, the Gerald Henderson, ML Carr, the Vernon, uh, Cedric Maxwell, obviously it's a different team in 86, but it's probably the best of the bunch. Oh yeah. I don't think there's any doubt about that. So they beat the Rockets in what five games in the finals. It's not a tremendously competitive finals, especially in the context of the Lakers Celtics ones all around it. Six games. Oh, it's six. Okay. Game five in Houston is marred by a fist fight between Ralph Sampson and the backup Celtics guard, Jerry Seesting. Sampson is at least a foot taller than Seesting. He was 11, I'm sorry, 11 inches shorter, grabbed onto Sampson on the block and wrestled with him. And Sampson rears back and punched Seesting. They both get ejected from the game. Sampson is fined $5,000. They go back to Boston and the Celtics fans are holding up signs that say things like Sampson is a sissy or hey, Ralph, I'm five foot one, 90 pounds. Do you want to fight me too? Celtics blow them away, win the 86 finals, win the 86 championship. And the entire team, the entire city is ecstatic. None more so than Bill Walton. Bird is uh, celebrates a little bit in Boston. He's exhausted. He goes home and goes to bed by about 1030. His phone keeps ringing. And eventually his wife picks it up and says to Bird, Bill Walton is on the phone. And Bird says, no, tell him I'm asleep. I can't come to the phone. A couple hours later, the doorbell rings at Bird's house. It's Bill Walton. This is what Walton says. I know you're tired and I know you're in bed, but I'm going to sit out here and listen to the Grateful Dead and I'll be here when you wake up. (laughs) (laughs) Walton sits in his friend's kitchen all night, nursing a glass of wild turkey and reveling in the moment. And Walton later says, I sat there and enjoyed how wonderful it was to be on a team with Larry Bird. Yeah, and Walton's a guy that's easy to make fun of, and and uh, uh, I was never as big as fan as a commentator, but you know that uh, like a veteran guy, and I know he won in Portland as like the lead dog, but you know getting to win that at the tail end of his career after all the injuries that that's a nice story. He's always said that that team basically saved his life because he, he you know. Say what you will about Bill Walton, and God knows through the years, I've said a lot of things about Bill Walton. I think probably if you were anywhere in the Hopewell Junction, New York area, and when I was in junior high school, and especially high school, watching a Nick playoff game with me, you probably heard me yell, shut the hell up, Walton, at least half a dozen times during the game. But the guy loves basketball. His whole life, he's loved basketball. He loves being around basketball. And I believe him when he talks about how depressed it made him that he thought his career was over. And then he gets sort of this one shining season with the Larry Bird Celtics. And so he always has spoke 
just reverently about Bird, about the organization, about our back. So, yeah, it, it is. It's, it's a touching story when you realize how much it meant to him to be on that Celtic team and win that championship. And then he starts getting hurt again. I think he only plays about 20 games the rest of his career. So his career is basically over after that anyway. Yeah. I think it's said 10 the next year. And then that was it from what I could t- say. We should talk a little bit about this game with Jordan. Yeah. So, you know, Jordan, this is what is second or third year in the NBA. Second season in the NBA. And the thing that's worth noting is that this is the only season. And that includes even up through the Wizards where Jordan misses most of the season with an injury. He breaks his foot. And I think he misses something like 60 games with the Bulls. He comes back. But real quick, they get into the playoffs as the eight seed. Do you know what their record was? I did know it just from looking this up. I, I remember that it was low. They were, what were they, 30 and, no, 30 and 52? 30 and 52. <laughs> well, you figure there were only what, like 25 teams? 23, 23 teams. And in the Eastern Conference, the Celtics won 65 games. Yeah. <laughs> so that was going to be, you know, that just having one team like that in, in a conference, that has got what, 11 teams, 12 teams. That's going to take it. It's funny. You see that again now with these play in games. You see teams that are, quote unquote, in the playoffs. If they're like a 10 seed that have that that level of record. Mm hmm. But Jordan misses both uh, misses most of the season. He wants to come back. The Bulls do not want him to come back. They're trying to play for more draft picks. And he manages to come back on like a very and if you've seen the last dance, this is spelled out really in a lot of detail. He wants to play, but they only they keep him on such a strict minutes restriction that there were games where there were like three seconds left in the game. And they would take Jordan out, even though the outcome was still in question, only because they were being so strict with him with this minutes limit. But they make it into the playoffs. And the day before, it's a story that's gotten famous. Jordan's playing golf with Danny Ainge and some others. Ainge beats him. And he says to Ainge, I got something for you and DJ, meaning Dennis Johnson, the next day. And he goes and he on this crazy tear in game game two against the Celtics. He scores 63 points and a little bit of a description here. The contest went to double overtime in 53 minutes of playing time. Jordan took 50, 41 shots and made 22 of them. The Celtics fouled him plenty. He made 19 of 21 free throws. His 63 points was the NBA's all time single game playing record. Larry Bird later says that's God disguised as Michael Jordan. And after that, the Celtics decide that the rest of the Bulls stink. So they're going to double team Michael Jordan for game three. And I should say that even though the game goes into overtime, the Celtics win it. And then the Celtics from there decide that they're going to double Michael Jordan and let somebody else try and beat them, which nobody can. And so the Celtics pick up a winning game three in Chicago and that's the end of the series. This is not exactly a stellar Celtics team. They do have an aging George Gervin, a Hall of Famer on their roster. But other than that, you're talking about guys like Kyle Macy and Sidney Green and Orlando Wooldridge and Jawan Oldham and uh, Oakley. Charles Oakley is on that team. I think that's Oakley's rookie year. 
because I think and, he got there the year after Jets. Oakley's rookie year, he got there the year after Jordan. So not a goals, not a good Bulls team, but an amazing performance by Jordan. And for the record, in game one, he also scored 49 points in just a regulation loss. So it's not like that 63 came out of nowhere. He scored 80% as many in regulation. So that's the NBA for 86. I think we probably would be a good time to talk about the aftermath of the 86 NBA season. But do you have anything else from the NBA season in 86 you want to bring up? The only thing I would say, because I always look up with these, like, what was this the first year for, or what was this the last year for? This was the first year that the backboard height was shortened. So obviously the top of the backboard was brought down to, I believe, what it is currently. So the backboard was taller, and they cut it down by six inches. I did not know that. I didn't know that either before I... Like anytime you pull up an NBA season on Wiki or like any sports specific season on Wikipedia, it'll say like rule changes and then it'll give you, you know, um, let me, I'll, I'll see if I can find the, uh, the specifics real quick, but you know, it'll always say like slight things that changed. And I believe for the 1985, 86 season that it said the backboard length was shortened. So that had to have been the top of the backboard. It's just worth noting that, like we said, that the Lakers, they, they rearm, they re-up and then by by the following season they're they're ready to dominate again. They beat the Celtics in the 87 finals, make it back in 88, win it again and so like like we said it's kind of a high point for the Celtics. No more championships, only one more finals appearance from there on out. But the Lakers stay in that dominant position for at least another 3 or 4 years. Yeah. So you're right. We should talk about the aftermath. And I mean, I'm assuming you're talking about one thing specifically when we talk about the 1986 NBA season or postseason. So I think the thing that's maybe most or not the most interesting thing, but the thing we should start with, despite winning the NBA championship, the Celtics have the number two draft pick in the 86 draft. We're into the lottery era by this point. They we talked about I mentioned some of the guys that were gone. They had traded away Gerald Henderson in 84. They'd gotten the first round draft pick of the Seattle Supersonics for the 86 draft. Seattle stinks. So this ends up being the number two pick in the NBA draft. And I want to look real quick here and see who was picked first in 86. Brad Doherty from UNC was the first overall pick in. And that was an era where you couldn't pick a pass up a, a legitimate big man. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it obviously made sense that he would go number one. And Darty, you know, had a good, good career, five-time all-star. Those, those Cavs teams with price and Larry Nance, those were some good teams. And so the Celtics pick a guy from, and who played in an area that I'm about, 10 minutes from as I sit here, University of Maryland star forward Len Bias, who a lot of people viewed as a can't miss prospect. And unfortunately, things go tragically, tragically wrong. You know, I, I remember I must have been in either junior high or high school the first time I like really knew about this story. And this was, I think, the second 30 for 30, which was done as a real good thing and i watched it the other night yeah here's the thing and I, and I, i'm not trying to be flippant or like a, a new york sports fan when i talk about this i think so much of this has gotten absorbed into the narrative of boston sports 
that we almost lose sight of just how big a tragedy this was, irrespective of what it would have meant for the Celtics going forward, or the fact that a Boston team didn't win a championship for 20 years. And again, I get that's the tendency. I'm Like I said, I'm not being a homer here in a minute. Let's just forget about where he was drafted for a moment. Well, let me let me just say one thing, you know, where it doesn't get absorbed into the Boston sports narrative in, is in Washington, D.C. In DC yeah. So, so it, let, let's just let's just step away from it for a minute. A guy who's one of the best players in the country, I'm assuming was an All-American in 1986, maybe in the player of the year in 1986, is drafted second overall, which means he's about to have a lifestyle change in terms of money. Family is about to have a lifestyle change in terms of money. Gets drafted, flies to the city that he's been drafted to, you know, signs an endorsement deal or has not has discussions for an endorsement deal with Reebok, meets the team, you know, has a photo op and and all of that. Flies home, goes back to his college dorm room. Twelve hours later is dead from a cocaine overdose. Twenty two years old. And then, you know, to sort of compound the tragedy in the era and then also given that it was a young basketball star on top of that then his friends who really their biggest crime was just being there with him some of them end up doing heavy jail time so again i i understand it and it's natural to think wow the 86 celtics were so good and think about what would have happened if they added this guy len bias let's not lose sight of just what happened and I think it's hard. I'm trying to think again, you feel strange making it about basketball, but I'm trying to think, and maybe basketball is really the only sport where it could happen, but of a guy who we never got to see in the pros, you know, or, or almost never got to see who came out with that much fanfare, you know, usually guys either, they're maybe they're busts, you know, maybe they're Rick Myrer and they come out and they play a few seasons and they still Ryan leaf and they stink. But the fact that he never, he didn't overdose in his first season. He didn't overdose a year or two. And, and it's like this eerie thing when you watch it, that he spent a day in Boston, you know, it's like, he was a Celtic. He was an NBA player for one day. Like, you see these pictures of him with the jersey or, you know, smiling after making the shoe deal. And it's just, I mean, it's eerie, first of all, because you're looking at a guy who's going to be dead in a day and he doesn't realize it. But beyond that, it's like the fact that he was there for a day, it would almost have been, it, it would have been less haunting if he had just died on draft night instead of going up there for a day. If that makes any sense. Picture of him in the Celtics has. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it obviously a bunch of stuff happened after that. The family was almost duty bound to sue the school. Just they needed to be able to sue somebody. Um, And then tragically, Lenny Bias's other brother was shot and killed. uh, Or Lenny Bias's brother was shot and killed a few years after that. It's hard to find an analog for it. I mean, you have guys who Hank gathers drop dead 
And I think in our, it's tough to also separate it from the culture at the time, which he was either a cautionary tale of a reduced to a just say no message, or like I said, a bunch of his friends got thrown in prison. I'd like to think if it happened now, we'd have a little bit more compassion about just like, you know, he wasn't killed committing an armed robbery. He wasn't killed, you know, driving 130 miles an hour down the street high on, on drugs or drunk or whatever. He was recreationally using cocaine in 1986 did not distinguish him from most people. He was young and dumb and made a young mistake and, and had just come into, I know he didn't (laughs) receive any of it yet, but it just, been told he was going to be rich so he's probably you know i don't necessarily buy the oh this was the first time he'd ever done cocaine i you know not that it matters but um i feel like over time len bias himself got lost in this story too whether you wanted it to be about drugs whether you wanted it to be about you know the corruption of ncaa sports which somehow got woven into that whether you wanted it to be about what would have happened to the celtics in the late 80s and i'm again i'm I'm not saying people who wonder about that were diminishing Len Bias dying because I, I don't think that's the case. But a 22 year old who had all his dreams come true was dead a day later or two days later. And it's yeah. a catalyst. I mean, I think we grew up, you know, I mean, I don't know when my first memory of, you know, of culture is, but it's probably only a year or two after that. And for you, yeah. People have said that his death was sort of you now obviously that you know the, the just say no and the drug stuff was out there already but people have said that sort of the you know we know is kind of the modern war on drugs and anti-drug messaging sort of started with that so it's funny you realize something that maybe the world you grew up in on a day in and day out basis was heavily influenced by that event just real quick on the basketball side of it, it is interesting to think about the fact that, yeah, because if you think about it too, I mean, how many world champion teams have added a guy like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's, I mean, they had the second pick on the draft after having one of the greatest seasons of all time, which is ironically, and this shows you what a genius Red Auerbach was. The only previous time that happened was it, or something similar was in 1980 after Bird's rookie year when he'd somehow managed to trade basically a bag of balls and engineer a trade that brought both McHale and Parrish in. So it is interesting to think, and again, you don't know so many things from an on the court point of view, but it is interesting to think that maybe the Celtics would have been better. Maybe bird's career would have lasted a little longer. It's just, you don't know, but you do have to, I think, acknowledge the fact that to not get a guy who was really supposed to play a major role on the team for years to come, that, that probably did set their organization back. Absolutely. Should we talk a little bit real quick about the, the college hoops? I was going to say the exact same thing, just because we're on basketball, um, you know, of the like four previous years, we'd have probably had a lot more to say. Um, yeah. Cause those were all those years with Georgetown and UNC and Nova and all those big East teams. And, what was it? 83 was Valvano and NC State. And then 84, Georgetown finally wins. 85 is the Villanova-Georgetown game. And 82 so, is uh, Jordan's championship. Is Ewing's fr- uh, freshman year. Yeah. So Louisville beats Duke in the NCAA championship game. 
it's an interesting year because some low seeds make the tournament or make it far. Cleveland State is the first 14 seed to make the Sweet 16. LSU gets to the Final Four as an 11 seed. Navy makes it to the Elite Eight, led by the Admiral David Robinson. And as far as the NCAA tournament goes, this is the only year of a certain confluence of things. It's the first year of something and the last year of something. Well, I know it's Shashevsky's first title game. Is that the first of what you're talking about? About rules. I do know this because it's about something about what I want to talk about. It's the first year of the shot clock. Mm-hmm. 45 seconds. Yep. And it's the last in response, by the way, to Villanova and uh, and Georgetown the year before. It's the last year where there's no three point line. Correct. And it is Shashevsky's first year in the championship game, I believe. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it was. So Duke plays Kansas in the final four and uh, Kansas is led by Danny Manning, who we were talking about Walton a minute ago. Manning is another one of these guys who ends up being a much better college player than he is a pro and 86. That's got to be Larry Brown's Kansas team, right? I would think because he was, he was the coach a couple years later when Manning won the title. Let me, let me pull up the 86, 85, 86, Kansas, uh, Kansas Jayhawks basketball team here. And I, I got the roster. here. Think about, you know, Danny Manning, that being kind of the start of the, you know, it's what, 10 years later that is his brother is at Tennessee and, you know, still continues to this day. It's like he was in the, in the basketball championship in the, in the mid eighties or, you know, in, uh, at Kansas. And then what is it? 10 years later, his brother's at, at, uh, Tennessee. And then his younger, his youngest brother at Ole Miss. And that is remarkably incorrect. They're not related. Danny Manning is not Peyton Manning's brother. No. I don't know about that. No, they have different parents and one is black and the other is white. No, they're not. They're not related at all. But anyway, yeah, this is the 85, 86 Kansas team. They make the final four. They're coached by Larry Brown and they lose to Duke in 85, 86 in the final four. And that's Shashevsky's first Duke team. And they put a guy in the final four. They put a guy by the name of Mark Allery is who they have guard Manning and Allery holds Manning to two of nine shooting. Duke then goes on to play in the championship game against Louisville and they lose to Louisville 69 to 72. And I just want to sort of, there's a, there's an interesting story about that championship game. The final score is 72 to 69. Like Andrew said, it was a first year of the 45 second shot clock. Louisville is up 70 to 69. They run the shot clock down, but couldn't get a good shot down as it winds down to zero. A player by the name of Jeff Hall launches an air ball that was short. So it goes right to Purvis Ellison for Louisville, who dunks it, grabs it, dunks it, and puts Louisville up by three and two things that Duke fans lament. Number one, there was no three point line, so they couldn't go down and try and tie it up with a three pointer. And number two, 
in later years, an air ball would not reset the shot clock. Uh, but in this, in the first year of the shot clock, it's considered a shot just by, you know, appearing to be a shot. But this is something that comes later, the change. And so for those two, now who knows? They, you know, Duke would have still had to have scored points. They were still losing. But this is Shashevsky's first year in the Final Four. He obviously has a lot more to come. But they lose this game. I, I just want to look at this Louisville team because I want to give them their due. Head coach is Denny Crum, who's a well-known, longtime college basketball coach. Not a lot of guys you maybe would have heard of on this Louisville team. Uh, Purvis Ellison, who played in the NBA for a number of years, a you know, forward center, big man, is probably the one you've heard of most from Louisville. Duke's got guys like Danny Ferry, uh, Jay Billis, who's somebody who's well-known in the world of college basketball as an analyst, even to this day, Quinn Snyder, Tommy Amaker, who uh, later goes on to be a longtime head coach, has been the head coach at Harvard for the last 15 years. So Krzyzewski's first Final Four team, his first uh, NCAA championship game team, very much a harbinger of things to come for 35 more years at Duke. Yeah, which is still continuing. He's going into his last year, this coming season's starting, you know, right around now. Should we cover hockey real quick? Yeah, let's do hockey real quick. And then maybe we do Nicholas because that's kind of a springtime type thing. The Masters. Yeah, we can get into some other sporting stuff. So hockey, it's a weird year. It's the only time in a five-year period where the Oilers don't win the Stanley Cup. They win in 83. They win in 84. Excuse me. They win in 84, 85, and then 87 and 88. Uh, this year, it's the Montreal Canadiens beating the Calgary Flames. I thought it might have been the last time two Canadian teams played for the cup fi- in the cup finals, but there was one a couple of years later. Yeah, like 89, right? 89, yeah. I thought it might have been the last year. Wayne Gretzky wins his seventh straight MVP. So even though they hadn't they didn't win that year, we're still very much in the middle of the Oilers dynasty. They finished with the best record in hockey. You, you're starting to see guys like Mario Lemieux getting coming up in the ranks, you know, it's still very much the, uh, the Gretzky Messier Oilers are the class of the league. And then Patrick Waugh has a really good playoffs ends up the Conn Smythe trophy winner as the Canadians win their first cup. And uh, it had been several years at that point. Cause well, if you think about it before they had won in, I want to say 79, but the six years before that you had the Islanders four times and then you had the Oilers. So in a nine year period, it was the Islanders four times, the Oilers four times, and then the Canadiens once. And this just happened to be that year. Yeah, not a lot of room for teams to peek through. No. And they actually, the Oilers, they, like I said, they won in 84, 85, 87, 88. And then I think a lot of people forget they won again in 90 uh, without Gretzky. After Gretzky was gone. Yeah. That was Messier's team. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, I didn't have a ton on hockey, and I don't mean to shortchange it, but obviously neither of us are huge hockey guys, and it's not a year where there's a ton of hockey stuff necessarily to focus on. Now, did Gretzky have a dominant year that year? Was that one of his big dominant years? Or I'll check. I mean, he won the MVP, but I'll check his, I'll check the standings, or I'll check his, check his numbers. Hang on one second. 
85, 86 leads the league in assists, league the league in points actually doesn't lead the league in goals. Only 52 goals, but yeah. And he's, uh, it's he, it's the year he has the most points though. 215 points. Yeah. Yeah. That is his, his, his career high for points. And that's what is the, what is the MVP trophy at this point? Is it the heart trophy? There's so many. Weird... He, had, he had a high year for assists with 163. So if you think about that, the next closest year he had an assists was 135. So he had two assists a game in addition to a goal a little more than once every other game. Before we talk about Nicholas, is there anything else that you kind of wanted to bring up quick from from sports in 86? Well, let's see. Uh, We'll do Tyson later. Do Tyson later. Um, Let's see what I got here. Soccer, that was the 1986 World Cup. That was, was that Maradona? That was the very famous, and we talked about this in our In Memoriam last year, 1986 World Cup. Uh, Argentina beats West Germany in, uh, in the Stanley Cup, or in the Stanley Cup, in the um, World Cup final, but very famously, the quarterfinals against England was the Argentina, England, uh, was Argentina playing England in the quarterfinals in the very famous hand of God game where Maradona pretty clearly punches the ball and it should have been disallowed as a handball. And then after the game, he announced, or he says, basically it was part the hand of God and part the hand of Maradona. So one of the most famous plays in soccer history takes place there. Horse racing, not too much to cover really from a horse racing standpoint, three different horses win the three triple crown races. So don't think we need to spend too much time on that. The Indy 500, Bobby Rahal wins the Indy 500. It's the first uh, time that someone has won the race in the under three-hour mark. So he's wow. the first one to break the the three-hour mark. What are they at these days? I don't know. Let me uh, pull that up. I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, in tennis, you had uh, Ivan Lendl won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. And Martina Navratilova also won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. Uh, On the women's side, Chris Everett won the French. I didn't realize there was only three Grand Slams back then. The Australian Open did not exist back then. So it was just the three major tournaments. I got another first for you for Wimbledon. It was the first time in Wimbledon history that a certain thing was used. A certain thing was used. Hmm, Starting the balls. Regarding the balls, and incidentally, um, this year's uh, Indy 500 winner was about two minutes and or two hours and thirty seven minutes. Pretty significant shaving. I mean, if you think about it. Yeah, another half hour probably. The first time certain things used was like an automatic. I don't know. First time yellow tennis balls were used at Wimbledon. Now, had they been used other places? That'd be my guess. The thing is, I guess if you think about it, if tennis balls are green. Well, Wimbledon's a grass, you know, it's a mm-hmm. grass court. So that doesn't, it was not, not something I'd ever thought about, but I saw it on Wikipedia. So I'm assuming we'll talk about college football later. In, yeah, we'll uh, talk about that when we do football. Okay. And then I will, since we're doing a bit of a, of a junk drawer thing, it was a big year in professional wrestling. Um, I won't go crazy about this, but um, you had two companies that kind of dominated the landscape. WWF was in the middle of their Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania run. WrestleMania two was that year, but you also had um, Hulk Hogan and Paul Orndorff doing uh, 
huge business as a, a feud going around the country with an angle that started right here in the Mid Hudson Civic Center in Poughkeepsie, New York. They put probably 17- the biggest one of Hogan's feuds that never got any sort of pay per view blow off. Yeah, it's it's definitely they, it's his biggest house show feud of all time. Culminated with seventy four thousand people outdoors in Toronto at the CNE Stadium, uh, and then on the other side you had uh, the Jim Crockett promotions out of the Carolinas. They were doing big business all over the country, and that was actually another interesting sort of story that broke over into mainstream news. Was one of their biggest up and coming stars was uh, on pace to be Ric Flair's opponent at their biggest show of the year. A guy by the name of Magnum Magnum TA, right? Young, good looking guy. Coming home from a town one night, he had dropped Dusty Rhodes off and was driving home in his Porsche way too fast and probably under the influence of something. Got into a huge car wreck that uh, made, you know, was the biggest story in Charlotte for weeks and hospital switchboards were flooded, but ended the career of, he didn't die, he survived, but ended the career of a, of a promising sort of up and coming wrestling star so very interesting year in wrestling there was a there was a day where both the wwf and jim crockett promotions ran shows in cincinnati uh at the same time and they each drew like fifteen thousand people so there was like thirty-five thousand people in one city went to see wrestling that day but um can you yeah. imagine driving through cincinnati that day and realizing that most of the people you're driving by are going to see wrestling yeah well i think it was the wwf was at the riverfront coliseum and uh Crockett was at the Louis or was at the Cincinnati gardens. So um, just an interesting story. So we can, uh, we can get back to more, but I, you know, I, I mentioned wrestling in 1920 and 1941. I felt like I had to do it in 86 in a year. I actually knew some things about. Well, and wrestling is a renewed focus here on the sports history network as uh, Andrew was thrilled to hear. So uh, do you want, you want to do golf? Yeah. And specifically the masters. This was the famous year of Jack Nicholson, uh, Jack Nicholas winning the Masters at, I believe, 46 years old. And it was his 18th major. Am I correct on that? It was his 18th major. He had not won a major since 80. In 80, he had won the U.S. Open and the PGA. And so you're right. He's 46 years of age, goes into this Masters at the end of the third day he's two under par four strokes back of the lead, but seven players are in front of him. And I just want to pull up. Let me see if I can pull up here. His last, cause he, he basically has a round that's just incredible. And I want to see starts making his charge on the 15th, but the back nine, it looks like he shot a 30 on the back nine. Let me see. Is this, I think this is the last day. Yeah, this is the last day. So his last stump, starting with the ninth hole, he goes birdie, 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 bogey, birdie, par, eagle, birdie, birdie, par. So he's on fire. He's going against his, his best competition is a guy by the name of Steve Ballesteros, Sevi Ballesteros, Sevi Ballesteros. And on the 15th hole, Ballesteros hits it into the lake, ends up with a bogey 
And then Nicholas, who himself eagles on 15. So you figure he picks up and they're not in the same pairing. But nonetheless, he picks up three strokes on 15 from Ballesteros. And that's basically going into the 15th hole. Ballesteros was minus nine. Nicholas was minus five. So they were four strokes apart. They're only one stroke apart after 15. And again, keeping in mind that this is not happening exactly the same time because they're, you know, one's ahead of the other. And then at the end of 16, they're tied They're You know, they're both, they're both at minus eight. On 16, by the way, Nicholas hits the ball with it three feet of the hole. Yeah. Off, off the tee. So he almost, it's almost a hole in one. Yeah. It's a par three and he birdies it. So that's a two stroke hole. Yeah. So he wins at 46. He is at the time. He is the third oldest guy to win a major. And really he's the second oldest because the highest at the time, the oldest at the time is Julius Boros in the 1968 PGA. The second highest is old Tom Morris in 1867 at the British Open. I don't know. He was probably just Tom Morris. <laughs> well, no, because there were two Tom Morrises. There was him and his son. There was old Tom Morris and young Tom Morris. Young Tom Morris has been dead for 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> So it's really at the time, if, if you only count sort of rounds that were played, you know, events that were held when there were no living slaves, then it's just it's just Boros in 68. And then I believe that, by the way, is like how when um, when the baseball season went up to 162 games and they started keeping two separate records one for 154 game season and one for 162 game season. I believe that's what they did with golf is rounds played when there were living slaves. and now <laughs> There were no living slaves. <laughs> Honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, we, we wouldn't have the expertise for it, although I, I'm sure knowing you and me, we could do an hour on it. It would be interesting to do a, an episode on like, we should, we should maybe do a series one day on like the really early days of every sport, like, you know, as a series, like, very beginning of of anything yeah. like that first college football game that was like you had to kick the ball and a goal and if you got it in the goal it's just soccer but more players more players died than there were points like you know but anyway so nicholas has this incredible game it's his last great it's his last major win it's his last great performance on the big stage and it is um, it's he's second all time in the modern era as far as age for winning a major. He's later bypassed. He and Boros are both bypassed by Phil Mickelson just this past year when Mickelson won the PGA at, at the age of 50. First guy over 50 to win a major was Mickelson this year. But this is considered sort of the greatest one of the great performances in golf history is this this Sunday at the Masters by Nicholas. And in some ways, what's almost more impressive is not so much that he wins, but that he's able to get get you know get past so many guys in the one day. Yeah, 
and that the the one shot he hits to win it is one of the you know when you see the masters commercials in early april with the sort of genteel music and and all of that that's one of the ones they always you see him during the ncaa tournament you see the ads for the masters and that's one of the famous shots is him hitting uh hitting the the shot to win the, you know hitting his last putt on 18 to win the uh masters in 86 yeah, sticking his fist in the air as the putt is rolling in yep all right so we've done the nba and we've done college basketball and we've done some of this other stuff as predicted we think this is going to be a two-part episode so Here's what I'm going to suggest. Why don't we do, I think, other than baseball and football, I think the only other thing we really have left is to talk about Tyson. And so do you want to maybe wrap it up with uh, with boxing and specifically with Mike Tyson? Sure. Before we get to Tyson specifically, one other boxing story from the year. There was a big fight June 13 of 86 at the Garden. Hector Camacho versus Edwin Rosario. Uh, it was an HBO fight. It was a, it was a fairly big you know, fight um, for a championship. But the note I saw on this days later, El Vocero newspaper reported of a murder related to the fight. Apparently a man had made a bet with another man. And after Rosario lost, the murder victim told his killer that he really didn't have any money. Probably <laughs> the killer could get enraged and shoot him. But anyway, listen, here, the Wikipedia article, I'm going to read the last two sentences of the Wikipedia. This, it's in a section called Aftermath. Told his killer that he really didn't have any money causing the killer to get enraged and shoot him, period. New paragraph. A rematch had been planned in 1997, but it never occurred. Now, that's obviously referring to a rematch of the fight. <laughs> the way it's laid out, sounds like they're saying a rematch of the shooting was planned. <laughs> yeah, of course, it didn't occur. The guy had been dead for 10 years. But anyway, yeah. So, And it's, it's, fitting, it's fitting when we talk about Tyson because we're going from the oldest Masters champion to the youngest heavyweight champion, heavyweight boxing champion of all time. Yes. So the thing that stands out to me about a lot of this, Mike Tyson in 1986 won the heavyweight championship on November 22nd against Trevor Burbick. Trevor, I remember that, A, because it's my, one of my best friends was born on that day, and B, Trevor Burbick is always so... It's so interesting to me because Trevor Burbick fought Muhammad Ali. So only fought, five years earlier. So there's a guy who fought Mike Tyson and Muhammad Ali. And he beat Ali, didn't he? Wasn't that Ali's last fight? Ali's last fight. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting to me is like, you, you okay, he was young. So you really should know this, but it doesn't really occur to you. Mike Tyson fought 13 times in 1986. Mike Tyson began 1986, and I'm pulling it up, fighting. I actually looked because I knew he had fought at the Mid-Hudson Civic Center in Poughkeepsie. That was in July of 85. But as early as his first fight in 86 was July 11th of 1986. And he fought in places like he fought in Albany. He fought in Troy, New York. He fought in Glens Falls. He, he was at this point living in Catskill and is, you know, where he went as a kid with custom auto, but um, you know, it, it was not like a, it was a precipitous rise. He was began the beginning of the year fighting like, you know, in places in front of 500 people. And by the end of the year, he's fighting for the heavyweight championship of the world. And by the first couple of months of 87, he has unified the titles. So we should take a step back here. Tyson born in Brooklyn, 
sort of grows up there, gets himself in, you know, legal trouble, ends up being, I guess, essentially adopted almost. I don't know if it's legal adoption or just sort of what it is, but he eventually gets, you know, taken in by this boxing trainer, Customato, who basically becomes the only father figure that Tyson ever has, brings him up to his place in upstate New York in the Catskill Mountains, and that's where he trains to be this heavyweight fighter. And and the other thing that's worth mentioning is as 86 dawns, D'Amato has passed away. And so Tyson's kind of entering a new phase of his life where he's got to figure some things out without his trainer and father figure in Customato. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's still very young, is fighting, you know, pretty consistently. Look, January 11th, January 24th, February 16th, March 10th. And he's, you know, First round knockout, fifth round knockout, sixth round knockout, third, then a couple of decisions. And then starting in June, actually on the undercard of that first fight I just mentioned, TKO in the first round, TKO in, or KO in the first round, KO in the second round, another first round KO, and then he starts jumping up. In uh, August of 86, he fights... Uh, well, the, the, that fight was he fought Marvis Frazier, Joe Frazier's son, and, and he beats him in like thirty seconds, right? Then he starts to make the jump where he's fighting in Atlantic City. Then he's fighting in Vegas. Uh, the, in September of '86, he fights in Vegas against a guy named Alfonso Ratliff, knocks him out in the second round. Twelve fights between January first and September sixth of '86, and that sets him up for November twenty second against Trevor Burbick. He's 27 and 0 going into that fight. Burbick's got the WBC heavyweight title, so he's got one heavyweight championship. There's still a few others out there. It's not a unified title. And Tyson knocks him out in the second round, take TKO in the second round to become the WBC heavyweight champion. Within a couple of fights in early 87, he has unified all three heavyweight champions and holds for four years, becomes a boxing and cultural phenomenon which really still is i mean there's been ups and downs to that there's been he's been over vilified he's been under vilified he's been given too much credit in, from an intelligence standpoint he's been given not enough credit from an intelligence standpoint but in 1986 when he's winning this heavyweight title he is unlike anything anybody's seen in a very long time in the boxing circles and he's a guy who knows and has a lot of love and respect for boxing history. Dave Anderson, writing in the New York Times, says Tyson is much more than merely the youngest boxer to hold a share of the heavyweight title. He's the glow of a new dawn, the heavyweight that the boxing public has been waiting for since Muhammad Ali stumbled into the sunset, which was only a few years previously but and i also would note that when he knocks out burbick he goes over to his corner and he says do you think cuss would have liked that so he's still very much trying to impress damato even after the man has been dead and this is you know it doesn't get much better for tyson than 86 and early 87 yeah, he um, just continues the run of knocking guys out in the first round. And you can go back to one of our earliest episodes on the history of the heavyweight boxing title. I think he's this is 
I think he's the first part of the second episode or the or the second part or the end of yeah. end of the first episode or the first part of the second episode. It's it's the beginning of the second episode. You know, highly recommend checking it out. He's this force of nature. He's knocking guys out in the first and second rounds. I think his biggest buildup was to Michael Spinks, and he just demolishes Spinks in like the second round. Uh, there's a, a post-fight press conference once where they ask him what his best punch is, and he says, my left, and they're like going insane. They're like, you, you're knocking all these guys out with like your right like hook. Like, How can you say your left's your best punch? He's like, I haven't gotten to that yet. <laughs> like, I haven't had to get to there yet. You know, and again, you can talk about what happened later. In 91, it really, this run of it kind of comes to an end in 91 with Buster Douglas. And there's ebbs and flows throughout the rest of his career and life, which, not to get off topic but for a second, but if you had told me that Mike Tyson would still be alive in 2021, I'd be pretty amazed by that, to be honest. Didn't he just fight an exhibition on like Christmas or something? He might have. I mean, you know, he, but yeah, there's, there's this guy coming from, Brownsville, Brooklyn, and then being hidden in Catskill, New York, you know, really not that far from here, but not far from where I live, but he, he gets his first piece of the heavyweight title, November 22nd, 1986, the youngest heavyweight champion in history, and is about to shoot into the stratosphere culturally. By the late 80s, he's one of the biggest athletes in the world, if you think about, or, you know, at least in this country, Joe Montana, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, eventually Michael Jordan, but... Mike Tyson is in the top five. Oh, you know. without question. When we did the boxing episode, we talked about how it was like, you know, the closest comparison is like Hulk Hogan. It's just this guy who's everywhere, ads, video games, just everything. It really, Tyson represents the 80s and that period in the 80s better than maybe any other athlete. Yeah, the late 80s. Yeah. All right, so we've talked about Tyson, we've talked about Nicholas, we've talked about Magic and Bird and a little bit of Coach K at the beginning and some other various things. Um, Andrew gave us a little bit of a wrestling education, which is always appreciated. So why don't we, uh, why don't we call the show for part one of our 1986 journey? And we got, we got a lot to talk about in the second episode. We're only, we're only at baseball and football left to cover, but... I mean, the 1986 baseball playoffs can be its own episode and then almost and can almost be its own episode. And then obviously the 86 Giants and that season has got a lot of a lot of uh, special place in our hearts, too. So why don't we call this part one and we'll reconvene and do part two uh, covering baseball and football uh, in a couple of weeks? Absolutely. And we'll talk about uh the 1986 Giants, the 1986 Mets, some interesting college football angles to get into, uh, tons and tons to get into. Absolutely. And an interesting theme that runs through a lot of this is people who were at the top of their game in one respect or another, and then later suffered some sort of a downfall. And we'll get into a lot more of that when we talk about the 86 baseball and football seasons. But that's your first look into 1986. We'll catch you next time for the conclusion. But until next time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. 
Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.